So we began this morning with the this, the first foundation of mindful attention being mindfulness of the of the body. <clears throat> that putting our mind in the same location as our body, harmonizing mind and body, getting to know the nature of our physical experience is a very central part of the development of, and the development of our practice and creating the conditions for us to know a sense of well-being and happiness that is beyond our ordinary sense of happiness being associated with just pleasant experience. And yet, at the same time, not downplaying or not minimizing the importance of being able to have one's senses gladdened, enjoying the the pleasure of sight, sound, smells, taste, touch, and even the pleasure of thinking, because there is pleasure associated with it. And it brings a kind of happiness and pleasure. But when that same pleasure and happiness is made our primary devotion, when we mistake that kind of happiness, as the, as an, which is very temporary, with, the, with an ultimate kind of happiness, with a a more reliable kind of happiness, we become caught in what's, what the Buddha described as the wheel of, of samsara, the wheel of endlessly searching, endlessly being hungry, searching for a happiness that never arrives because the pleasure that we associate it with rises, passes, and leaves in its wake a, a desire for more. And the state of desire itself when unrecognized and included as an object of meditation, the state of desire itself allowed to just run unrecognized leads again and again into a state of dissatisfaction. And it expresses itself in our desire for, uh, to, for love, to be seen, to have, to receive, to have every need met to satisfy our desire, all the different ways that desire plays out. Here's one where Hafez, the poet Hafez says, admit something, everyone you see, you say to them, love me, love me. <laughs> of course, you don't say this out loud, otherwise someone would call the cops. <laughs> Still, though, think about this, this great pull in us to connect, to have. Why not become the one who lives with a full moon in each eye that is always saying with that sweet moon language what every other eye in this world is dying to hear? So we're often the one, as it's described in the Buddha's teachings, we are, and I could say this about our culture in general, we are a culture of hungry ghosts. The hungry ghosts are a plane of existence that's really just a metaphor for the state of mind where the beings are depicted as having tiny mouths and huge stomachs, unable to be satisfied. So we spend a lot of our life in this state of craving, in the state of hunger, in a state of what the Buddha called when he translated the word tanha, a craving, called it unslakable thirst. 
So that kind of happiness, even though it's associated with things that are so necessary for our life, certain pleasures, when it's made our devotion, it becomes the cause of our suffering. And so the, the great meditation, modern meditation master, Suzaki, Suzuki Roshi, founder of uh, San Francisco Zen Center, he, the way he put it is, renunciation is not giving up the things of this world, but in understanding that they go away. Having our life and everything about our life be informed by the poignancy by the reality that everything that arises passes away, informed by impermanence, so that we have a wise relationship to the pleasures of the senses, a wise relationship to our bodies, which are aging, get sick, not according to anybody's will or wish, it's in its nature, that we are in harmony with the fact that youth gives way to aging, that, that life gives way to death, that, that this is just the natural course of things. So to cling to, as I mentioned earlier in the day, to cling to our pride in our youth, the pride in health, the pride in life, is to, is to uh, increase the sense of dis-ease that's already prevalent because there are so many things in this world that are hard to bear. It's already hard to age. It's already hard to get sick. It's already hard to die. It's already hard to get, not get what you want and not want what you get. That's a given, anybody's life. But we compound it by adding to it the habit of resistance, contentiousness with life, or craving for something that, will, will, um, that we think will give us lasting happiness that won't. It just increases the sense of um, frustration and dissatisfaction. So we instead aim for all, creating the conditions where we can enjoy this world, but, but with a soft touch, with a light touch. And that we can enjoy things that give us a much more reliable sense of happiness. And even though the practice of non-harming is a cause for being able to enjoy the world, there is within the refinement of that practice of non-harming what the Buddha described as the bliss of blamelessness, a great joy that arises by a mind that's not inundated, not reverberating from the effects of having said something, done something, taken something, hurt someone, uh, that a heart that is what, what's described as filled with what he called purity of action, is a, is a happy person. Uh, and not only does one experience the bliss of blamelessness, and people tend to want to be around someone who exhibits that kind of purity because they offer uh, what is described as the gift of fearlessness. People do not have to be afraid of you if, you're, if you, by and large, act in a way in your life that is pure, non-harming where you're thoughtful in your speech, in your actions, and you do things with your body that don't cause harm. So this is a very central foundation for the happiness and well-being of a Buddha, of an awakened person. And without this, it's often been described 
if you don't establish this foundation of non-harming, this source of great happiness, this bliss of blamelessness, if you don't establish this and you try to meditate your way into happiness without really having that foundation of purity, of action, it's like trying to row a boat without untying it from the dock. That your practice will just go nowhere. So it's very central, if you want to be truly happy, to be non-harming. So that's where we started today. And we started by uh, attending to being able to attend to our experience by having our attention in the same location as our body. And this has two different, two different um, benefits to it. One benefit is it harmonizes our mind and body. And we begin to sense that, you know, if I stay here a little bit, it's not as bad. My immediate and direct experience it doesn't square so well with the story that plays through my mind about myself. It's hard to find in real time the evidence for you being unworthy, insufficient, a bad person, uh, whatever it is, someone who's worthy of being critical of. There's nothing and no one that you can find like that in real time. That is a story of the past. And so you begin to see very clearly the difference between the story that plays through our mind and what our immediate and direct experience is. But we're so often filtering our immediate and direct experience through the narrative of our past that we don't actually see what's real. So we don't see the difference between (coughs) the direct experience and uh, our ideas about ourselves. In direct experience, there's not one person here. We cannot find in real time the person who's not okay. And the only way that you can find that person is if you consult your memory. But yet we undervalue what's immediate and direct and would rather go to the past for our self-definition, for, the, for our value. As one of my teachers said, you need the past and thoughts to suffer. You don't need anything to, to be free. And the boulders of the past just rest on your chest. And so what we do, we turn the tide, by, we turn the tables by bringing, by noticing. We don't get rid of our little narrative. We don't even get rid of our our story of judgment, self-judgment, or, or <coughs> insufficiency, or that something's wrong, we notice it as just another object of mind. Oh, that's, there's the judgmental thought. So I was wonderful that you noticed, oh, my mind is getting ju- judgmental. If you notice that the refrain in your mind is, you, I should be different than the way I am. Oh, that's just another, that's an old narrative. Making that shift from being carried along by that narrative to noticing it, it's a beginning of freedom. And freedom is, freedom is what, <clears throat> freedom not being bound up in the old narratives of our mind is, a, is very central to the happiness and well-being of an awakened person. 
So by bringing your mind and body into the same location, we experience, start to get a sense that I'm not as bad as people say. No, I started to say I'm not as bad as people say. I'm not as bad as I think I am. There's not really evidence for my whatever I say about myself or anybody else. But at the same time, by bringing our attention into the present moment, we begin to see more clearly all the ways, all the habits of mind that lead me to think that I'm not okay, that lead me to think that I cannot be happy here. Now, before lunch, how many of you were waiting for the bell to ring? Come on, be honest. Now, the, now, if you noticed waiting, no problem. That's just waiting. <coughs> waiting is not a big deal if you notice it. But if you don't notice it, you don't notice that feeling of waiting real time. That feeling of waiting, if it's recognized in real time, it may feel a little bit unpleasant. Any of you notice it? in a way that you could actually feel the unpleasantness of waiting. It has a little story to it. Not a big deal. It's just something. And the very feeling of waiting becomes my anchor to the here and now. No problem at all. But if it goes unnoticed, that waiting produces a little... Waiting is a state of of suspended happiness. And the, the tension of that waiting tends to generate a little narrative that says, hmm, I won't be happy until the bell rings. The bell is the secret to happiness. You know, it's all about well-being and happiness. That's what makes us human. That's what we all share, the desire for happiness and the desire to be free of suffering. So it's so embedded in our nature. So naturally, we would think, oh, I am going to, I know I'll be happy when that bell rings. Because in the past, when the bell rang, there was this, ah, there was a feeling of relief. And so you innocently thought that getting what you want, or the bell ringing, or getting to the end of what you didn't want, or whatever it was, that was the secret to happiness. That's what you were told, in a way. Getting to make that purchase. Get to that vacation. That was the, and of course, when you had that experience of the, end of what you didn't want and getting what you want, you felt that, "Ah, I can be happy now. And you thought it was related to the object, the thing that you wanted or the thing you didn't want. But what really brought you the relief, what brought the relief in truth, if you look more carefully? Anybody want to venture a guess? Let's say, since the objects are interchangeable, what is it that really brings the happiness? To stop wanting something that's not bringing It's the cessation of waiting. It's the end of waiting, of wanting, of hoping, expecting. That those states of mind, when they go unnoticed, they create a projection, they color the present moment in such a way that says, I can't be happy now. And my happiness lies in the, the bell ringing or whatever it is. And so what do we do as meditators? We make a commitment 
not to postpone being well and happy for even one moment. So, and how do we do that? We turn our attention to the very state of mind itself. And we notice that waiting feels like this. And then that same state becomes the cause of our awakening. How does it do that? We feel that feeling of waiting. We take our attention off of the object because they're endless. We, can, we may even reflect in our lives, I have waited my whole life for the next thing. I remember age 20, I was about 24, 25, and I was traveling to visit my cousin who was living in a foreign country. And I was, I was lying in a hammock, and I had a moment where I wasn't waiting for anything. And I realized that was the first moment in my life I wasn't waiting for anything. That my whole life was pervaded by this obsession with what's next. And from that moment on, I, I started to see, that I started to notice that mental state of, I call it spiritual or I call it postponement. That we're constantly postponing our well-being. Putting, our, putting it on hold, state of, practicing, reinforcing a state of suspended happiness. So what we do as meditators is we expand beyond, we take our attention off the object. They're endless. And instead we feel that state. And that same state, when, un, that when unrecognized, leads us to that chronic state of waiting. That same state, when it meets the light of attention, it comes, it feels a little uncomfortable, and it fades away. So the alchemy of mixing awakened awareness or mindful attention with even the most difficult state causes, becomes the cause of a letting go, of a cessation of waiting and wanting, because that's what brings the relief, the ending of waiting and wanting. What feeds waiting and wanting is not noticing it. What liberates it, what aerates it, what loosens it up is noticing. So this is why it's called a hindrance. It only hinders our happiness and our well-being when we don't notice it. When we notice it, it becomes our path, becomes the way home. So the, those common mental states that postpone our well-being and happiness, that hypnotize us into thinking we can't be happy now, the five common mental states are that wanting mind, waiting in all its flavors, waiting, wanting, hoping, expecting. The flip side, the aversive state, the resistance, fear, anger, irritation, boredom, all the ones that move away from what's present. And of course the objects of aversion are endless and we continually wait for our neighbor to change, our partner to change, the politics to change. We can literally live our life in a state of suspended well-being and find plenty of narrative to, to justify and reinforce our irritation. But it's, not, it's never the object. It's our inability to be at home 
with the unpleasant experiences of life that are inevitable. Unable to keep our center when people are different than the way we want them to be. And so instead of making all the objects of our problems in our life real, we notice, we notice how we see things, but we feel the state of irritation or aversion. And first, things first, we deal with our own mental state that feeds ill will in this world, that feeds irritation, that feel, feeds frustration, that feeds the, judge, the judgmental mind. We notice that. And that becomes, if I let myself feel that aversive mind, really sense how painful it is to be at the effect of how everyone is to such a degree. Such a, um, blown by the winds of circumstances and views and opinions. When I feel that, one, I will recognize those feelings are changing. Two, it will, it will break my heart. It will become the cause of self-compassion and the cause of compassion for others because everybody's walking around with the same complaints and blaming everybody and not able to deal with their own ill will, aversion, their own ways that they postpone well-being until conditions turn out the way they want them to. This is a universal tendency. So this is why if we notice it, it becomes the cause of our awakening. If we don't notice it, it becomes a hindrance to freedom, hindrance to, to peace and well-being. So we want to really notice all the ways that desire, grasping, and aversion play in our life. The third one, a little less, um, we'll give a little less airtime to, sloth and torpor, the kind of habit of mind to just check out, <clears throat> dull, sinking mind, lifeless, uh, that doesn't have a lot to do with being tired. It has to do with just a habit of, of moving away from life. Instead of turning toward, it's a way of moving away. It's a, it sometimes comes as an imbalance between, between tranquility. We may have some tranquility, but we but we don't, we, have, uh, we don't have enough energy. Our vital energy gets really diminished in our lives from living so much in, in mental, mental speed, mental time, and we don't take care of ourselves way, so we often can get quite dull and exhausted. So sometimes it's based on just the way we live our lives, but sometimes it's just a habit of mind. And when that habit goes unnoticed, it colors everything as being a lifeless, dull cause of, of, um, of not seeing very clearly and we fall into a state of delusion, a kind of dullness, and can drift a long time in fantasy, in dreaminess, and really not experience the, the fullness and the joy and the happiness that's available to us as the very nature of our minds. So we want to notice our state. Want to notice the state of dullness whenever it arises. Aerate it with attention. See how long it lasts when you pay it, when you take an interest in the state of dullness. How many times do we do that? What do we normally do when we're dull? I've got a little coffee here. I've got. Uh, I might. Um, 
I might uh, go take a jog or something. You know, sometimes there's some useful things to do. But often we don't, uh, we do the things that actually tire us out more and not things that give energy. So we try to mix attention together with dullness. And interestingly enough, when it's sloth and torpor as a mental state, by paying attention to it, it actually evaporates more often than not. So the next one is uh, restlessness. Agitation, worry, guilt. Any of you ever have any of those? (laughs) General state of worry is because our mind is so fixated on on, uh, our well-being being dependent on what happens, how things turn out. So if if I have the future as the source of my happiness, wouldn't it... It's inevitable that I'm going to be fearful and worried because I have no idea whether it will work out. I don't know. Anybody that says, oh, it's all going to be fine to kind of mollify your, your worry is not really getting to the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is you've forgotten that the well-being, the peace, the working out that you're looking for is already available to you as the very nature of the consciousness through which you're perceiving. You couldn't be any better than you are in this moment. And that all search for happiness somewhere else is a a kind of misery. But we are in the habit of associating our well-being with how things turn out. And then missing our life. And to the degree that we have worry... And that state of suspended happiness, we also have this feeling of restlessness, of agitation, of tension. And then what, the, what does that do when that goes unnoticed? It generates more worry. So what we do as meditators is we take our attention off of that, off of whatever the projections of the future, and we feel that restlessness and agitation. Everything that we're be doing today to bring our mind and body together, to have our mind and body in the same location, also has the effect of of calming the restless mind. Everything that we do to become more emotionally articulate, more current with our emotions, calms the restless mind. Everything that we're doing to notice the reactivity in our mind of aversion and grasping calms the restless mind. So everything we're doing is a an antidote for restlessness. But sometimes you just have to notice the restlessness. Come out of the story of worry or guilt, trying to work out the future, trying to work out the past when they're both just ideas. Uh, instead, we, we use that liveliness of restlessness to the degree that we can. We use it to bring ourselves here. Everything, it's equal opportunity mindfulness. Everything gets used to bring you here. So the last one that torments us if it goes unnoticed is the mental state of doubt, uncertainty, confusion. The sense of self-doubt, doubt about teachings, doubt about teachers, doubt about 
performance, doubt, doubt, doubt. Any of you ever have doubt? <laughs> now, usually with doubt, we don't actually notice it as doubt. We get involved in the content of the doubt. I can't do this. Everyone else in the room seems to be great meditators except me. Or he seems just as neurotic as the rest of us. He, or this isn't as interesting as the, the chanting I was doing or the Sufi dancing or, the, or there's, not enough, there's not enough heart to this or whatever it is. Lots of little narratives that are just a disguise for doubt, confusion, uncertainty. But instead, in, in our meditation practice, we try to notice, oh, that's doubt in the mind. We try to feel what that's like and have that same state bring us into harmony with things the way they are in this moment. Instead of spinning out a story or a narrative about why I cannot be happy now. All of my flaws, all of, all of the way life works for everybody else except me. That whole story, as compelling as it is, is just a story. There is no reality to it in this moment. And this is the, your whole life, believe it or not, has come to this moment. You have no other life other than this moment, in truth. And so where is the where is the, your insufficiency or your not enoughness right now? Now, if you have a thought of doubt or worry or wanting or aversion, we make space for that. Ah, there's the thought of doubt. We don't make it real. We see it as a changing condition like the weather. And so that's true of all of these mental states. And the whole of our practice is going from that narrow view where we believe everything that our mind says to noticing, oh, that's desire, that's aversion, that's restlessness, that's slothfulness, that's doubt. That's the hateful one in me. That's the fearful one in me. We see it all. We open to it all. As... um, Carl Sandburg shared in his wonderful poem called The Wilderness. We open to everything. He says, there's a wolf in me, fangs pointed for tearing gashes, a red tongue for raw meat, and the hot lapping of blood. I keep the wolf because the wilderness gave it to me, and the wilderness will not let it go. We just include everything. There's a fox in me, a silver gray fox. I sniff and guess I pick things out of the wind and air. I nose in the dark night and take sleepers and eat them, hide the feathers. I circle and loop and double cross. There's a hog in me, a snout and a belly, a machinery for eating and grunting, a machinery for sleeping satisfied in the sun. I got this too from the wilderness, and the wilderness will not let it go. You can see this spirit of inclusiveness. We open to it all. There's a fish in me. I know I came from the salt blue water gates. I scurried with shoals of herring. I blew water spouts with porpoises before land was, before the water went down, before Noah, before the first chapter of Genesis. There's a baboon in me, clamoring clawed, dog-faced, yawping a galoot's hunger, hairy under the armpits. 
Here are the hawk-eyed hankering men. Here are the blonde and blue-eyed women. Here they hide curled asleep waiting, ready to snarl and kill, ready to sing and give milk, waiting. I keep the baboon because the wilderness says so. There's an eagle in me and a mockingbird, and the eagle flies among the rocky mountains of my dreams and fights among the Sierra crags of what I want. And the mockingbird warbles in the early forenoon before the dew is gone, warbles in the underbrush of my Chattanoogas of hope, gushes over the blue Ozark foothills of my wishes. I got the eagle and the mockingbird from the wilderness. Oh, I got a zoo. I got a menagerie. Inside my ribs, under my bony head, under my red valve heart, I got something else. I got a man-child heart, a woman-child heart. It's a father, a mother, a lover. Came from God knows where. It's going to God knows where. For I am the keeper of the zoo. I say yes and no. I sing and kill and work. I'm a pal of the world. I came from the wilderness. So opening to our nature, we, we have all these mental states, but we're not... We're not um, lost in them. Our view is not so narrow that we believe that we're just that one state that's present, but we, we experience them all as the inner weather. And in that process, then, we can see which states are what we would call wholesome, helpful, onward leading toward more happiness and well-being, and which states are unwholesome that lead to more unhappiness. And then we, with our full awareness, we open that space of choice, of, of, wise, um, of wise choice, and then incline our hearts and minds toward the wholesome and abandon, let go of the things in our life that tend to cause us more misery. But if we're just carried along by the stream of our habits, very hard to have that space, that creative space of choice. Here's from the Cherokee Nation. A grandfather from the Cherokee Nation was talking to his grandson. A fight is going on inside me, he said to the boy. It's a terrible fight, and it's between two wolves. One wolf is evil and ugly. He is anger, envy, war, greed, pity, self-pity, Sorrow, regret, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, false pride, superiority, selfishness, arrogance. The other wolf is beautiful and good, is friendly, joyful, peace, love, hope, serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, justice, fairness, empathy, generosity, true compassion, gratitude, and deep vision. The same fight is going on inside of you and inside every other human as well. The grandson paused in deep reflection because of what the grandfather had just said. Then he finally cried out, Oi, grandfather, which wolf will win? The elder Cherokee replied, The one that you feed. So how do we even know? How do we have that choice? of what to feed and what not to, unless we open to the whole zoo, the whole menagerie. So that means learning how to accommodate our mental states, our moods, our emotions, and 
so that they don't just get projected out onto everyone else. So it's not always the neighbor's fault or the politician's. Who else do you blame? My mother. My mo- it's not your mother's fault. <laughs> Thank you. So we'll entitle these stray thoughts, It's Not the Neighbor's Fault. It's not your mother's fault. So let's just sit opening to the whole range of moods and emotions and mental states. And I know I elaborate a lot on those five common mental states because they're the, considered those states that tend to torment us when they go unnoticed. So somewhere in the span of our practice of well-being and happiness, we have to be able to taste a well-being that is not so defined by these different mental states. And so part of, the, part of that awakening is to be able to see these mental states, but part of it is to actually see their discontinuity to be able to see and experience moments when we are not inundated with some kind of state of mind that's some kind of torment to the mind, some kind of what's called a defilement. And you'll find that by paying attention to all our different states, you'll see sometimes that there is a gap, that there is a mind and body come together and there's just quiet. And if you stay in that quiet a little bit, you begin to sense that that quiet of your own mind and body, it's permeated with light, love. And you'll recognize that this is your natural state when your mind is free of its preoccupations. So we both notice these different mental states, but also notice their absence. So for right now, we bring our mind and body together by using again our breath as an anchor. Intimately feeling the sensations of the in-breath and the out-breath. Resting in that space between the breaths. Breath by breath. 
we sink into the reality of the present moment, aware, fully comprehending the fact that we're sitting, breathing, and we remain undistracted as long as that lasts. And you may notice sensation, other sensations. They are not considered distractions. It's just the next thing to notice. You may notice sounds, not considered distractions, just the next thing to notice. And you may notice moods and emotions. You may notice mental states, states of the heart, states of the mind. So if any of these become stronger than the breath, we treat them as welcome guests, part of the zoo. We notice desire, aversion, restlessness, <coughs> sloth, doubt. We notice happy, sad, joy, fear, sorrow, jealousy. It's often a narrative, but we expand beyond the narrative and we feel what it's like to feel sad or happy or peaceful, or calm agitated. Whatever it is, we use it on behalf of our mindful attention to this moment. We notice everything as changing conditions like the weather. Everything's coming and going. And when things fade away or become less prominent, less compelling, We just rest in that quiet awareness. And if you find it helpful, we anchor our attention in the simple reality of this breath. Aware of being aware. Filled with the texture of our life as it's unfolding. Not the story of our life, but the direct experience. Just this moment. Just this breath or whatever is predominant.
no matter how many times you realize that you've been lost in thought, imagined past, imagined future, no matter how many times or for however long you've been drifting in virtual reality, each moment that you recognize that is a moment of re-arising mindful attention. So each moment of awakening is a moment of potential celebration. So no need to judge, it's just the conditions of mind. But if anything, to appreciate those moments of awakening, and then on behalf of it, anchoring your attention in the breath or whatever it is that's predominant, what's revealing itself right now. It's completely natural for the mind to drift. We're encouraging awakening. Just this moment, this breath or whatever is calling your attention. (coughs) Gentle stillness of body, steadiness of mind, open and receptive, but alert and precise intimately feeling the texture of whatever is being felt, experienced.
So I have the feeling that, feeling that uh, we're starting to experience a little bit of the effects of being together all day. Fertile ground for a multiple hindrance attack where you want what you don't have, you don't want what you do have, you get restless and agitated, exhausted, and then start to have doubt about why you're here. And, and then on top of that, that, enough of a cocktail that then you start planning your escape. And, and unless, you have a, unless you have a high degree of mental strength, it's very easy to follow those narratives. And before you know it, you're, you're leaving early. So I want to urge you to, uh, even if you don't have the mental strength, to just close the exit doors. Just to, um, just to commit yourself to staying here. You'll gain a lot of merit, a lot of strength, if you just work with whatever is showing up and see if you can keep opening to it with kindfulness, kindness and attention. And it is inevitable that if you're not used to sustaining practice for or listening in this way for for a day that you're that you will it is it's almost the it is lawful it's inevitable that you will be uh, visited by all of the different mental states that convince you that there's no way you can be happy here and now, <laughs> which is what I was trying to speak about before, and so it really is fertile ground and and yet our mind is much more in the habit of believing if my mind says, you know, this is enough or I don't like it or whatever, we just are like puppies on a leash. We just follow whatever our mind says. Here, just urge you to pay attention to that. What's the state of my mind right now? Can I meet this with attention? Can I meet it with kindness? So am I aware? What am I aware of? And can I accommodate this? So what's your mental state right now? Anybody willing to say? Please. Oh, we need a little microphone. If you can scream it out, we won't need the microphone. And this is, we're actually going to only take one question because one of the ways that will help uh, refresh you, your mind is to take some, do some walking practice. But please turn it on. I hear something cooking now. Thank you for taking my question. Pleasure. Last so, um, question. I have a lot of confusion um, and doubt right now, and um, thank you for at least allowing me to recognize my sentiments and feelings around how I'm thinking. Um, but I have two questions. First, um, I'm trying to learn from, my, from the past so yes. I can improve myself. So improve yourself? Right, as a human being. Yeah. So I look, I think I need to look back on the past in order to um, hope to make some changes in my behavior, in my thinking, in order to become a better human being. Yes, I Re- also reflecting have... in the present moment on past actions, habits, effects of things, very helpful. So that's kosher, that's okay? That's, what, that's one of the things that happens in the present moment. So that's acceptable. <laughs> the future... Um, no, it's not okay. <laughs> and um, because I don't have a trust fund... <clears throat> you um, have to do some planning and strategizing, don't correct. you? Correct. Um, in all facets of my life. Social, 
work. Yes, isn't that? It's another one of those things that we have to do in the present moment. So how do you live paying attention to the present moment when, um, how do I live trying to pay attention to the present moment when I do want to reflect on my past and not make those same errors and then think about the future? Well, unfortunately, we have made reflecting and planning so loud and so prominent in our mind that we don't live, our, we don't live in the present at all. Here's what the Dalai Lama said if I can find it in my pile. This is kind of how it works. <laughs> this is an f- initial answer to your question. Dalai Lama, when asked what surprised him most about humanity, answered, man, because he sacrifices his health in order to make money. Then he sacrifices money to recuperate his health. Then he's so anxious about the future that he does not enjoy the present. The result being that he does not live in the present or the future. He lives as if he's never going to die and then dies having never really lived. So we have, so the planning mind and the remembering mind, when taken to an extreme, obscures the life of the present moment. We, we lose contact with that no matter how things turn out or no matter how they've been, there is within your capacity right here and now to experience a deliciousness that doesn't depend at all on conditions. So first things first, find where your happiness really lies. And that's really right here. Anywhere else you're looking for it, you're going to miss the most precious thing you have. Now, having said that, once I've established that my well-being is unassailable because it's, it's the natural state of my being right where I am, if I understand that, then I can go about planning, which I inevitably have to do, for, in your case, for resources, for fulfillment, for all the different things that you do. But you go about planning, visioning, creating, but without the, de- without the demand that it has to make you happy. Because you already have that. So then you do it with the freedom to and the clarity to express your life in the best way that you know how, in the most skillful way you know how, but you know that your medicine is to stay right, is to be in touch with right where you are. That's your deepest medicine. And then you go about planning, because planning has, we have to plan. But then remember that any planning that we do, any visioning that we have to do, any creating we have to do, always takes place in the present moment. So any thought I have about the future happens right here. So if I get lost in my plans about the future and lose contact with this, my body goes into a state of freeze, into a state of fight or flight. Because then, I have to, then I'm worried about how it's going to turn out. And when I'm worried about how it's going to turn out, because I've forgotten that it, it's already turning out, <laughs> when I forget that, my body, I stop breathing, I go into a state of suspended happiness, I get anxious, worried, and then as a way of dealing with that, I spend so much time thinking, and then I reflect on how it was before, and I lo- I've lost, I've done what the Dalai Lama says, I've got my mind so off on past and future that I don't live where I live. So if I can notice, however, that, or on the other hand, if I can notice that I'm planning, if I can notice that I'm reflecting and trying to learn from my past, Everything that I reflect on, everything I, I plan, 
keeps reminding me of my love of being right where I am. Does that dispel a little of the confusion? Oh, good. You know, I, for some reason when you said that flip-flopping, it reminded me when I was in graduate school, and I tell this to a lot of groups, but in graduate school I studied uh, the way that different cultures language things, and so much of our language is so much, in our culture, is bound up in the, in the concept of time. The time is money concept is probably the most, most common metaphor in our culture, time is money, and so I don't have enough time too much time. Um, time is running out. It's just, you know, the time is money. And, and our whole idea, we tend to get so caught up in this little mental world of time that we, we lose the, the broadness of the fullness. That it's just so, time, the timeless that's right here is just so big and full and enough. But the little idea of time is there's always scarcity. So I'm coming from the past, passing through the present, on my way to the future, and the future holds the key. Meanwhile, I'm getting smaller and smaller. The life all around, in and around me is being missed while I'm on this little narrow pathway. And so the way we frame it in our culture, and this is just a mental habit, is the past is back there, the future's up there. And I'm, I'm that one that's moving from the past. That one that doesn't, that one doesn't even exist because none of us has ever left the present. We've only done that in our imagination. We've only created this little person that's coming from there, passing through here on our way to there. That's just an idea. We've always been in an unfolding present. We've always been in the here and now. No matter where you go, there you are. So whatever your past moments were, they were present moments. <laughs> whatever your future moments, they'll be present moments. So the more you get used to present time, real time, the more your, your life broadens out beyond this concept of time, period. So the, interest, so the interesting thing I found in this uh, study that about this culture in, uh, I think it was an African culture, that had time, their view of time was exactly, as you said, flipped. Their idea is the future's behind you. The past is in front, because you can see the past. You can't see the future. So when I heard that, it kind of, whoa, let's see if we, let's try that on. Put the future behind, put the past. Now just get rid of all the concepts of time completely and you'll be free. You'll see that, you'll see that you, we're bound up in these concepts. The, the second part that I found very fascinating about the, the concept of time, probably two of the main words in our vocabulary are want and when. Want and when. When do I get what I want? <laughs> and one of the things they noticed about the Mokan tribe in Burma, the one that uh, during the big tsunami they survived when the, their neighbor, who was much more modern acculturated, they all died. 
and this culture that lived right next to them that was very close to the sea and nature, they, um, they survived and thrived after the, during and after the tsunami. And when they studied this tribe, there, there were two words that are not part of their vocabulary. There was no word for when, and there was no word for want. Just try removing those words for a few moments from your mind. They, they just were in tune with the nature. They saw the way the sea was moving. And, but that was just another aside, that one of the interesting things about their culture, and maybe what helped them really tune in to the life that was unfolding, is they, didn't have, they weren't constantly obsessed with when and what they want. So we don't even realize how conditioned we are. And yet the Buddha saw that we're all conditioned in a very similar way, just as human beings. We're conditioned to want, chronic conditioning, to want what we don't have and not want what we do have. So he basically wants us to turn it around and say, want what you have and don't want what you don't have. Or accept what comes and say goodbye to what goes instead of cling to what, what comes and try to push away, you know, push away th- keep things around, you know, but to open to the whole flow of things. So how did I get on that topic? Oh yes, flipping things around. Oh yes, we, we have a period now for walking practice, and I really want you to take advantage of the opportunity to both be attentive to standing and then to walking. We'll just walk for 10 or 15 minutes, so the, the gong will go off, but really walk mindfully so that you're both energizing your body and staying quite present. And uh, thanks for hanging in there this afternoon. If anybody wants to check in, please come forward and I'll chat with as many as I can.
Please re-enter your individual field of solitude. Let us take advantage of the rare opportunity to be alone together, to practice for this last phase of the day what we call noble silence, give each other the gift of solitude. like to just offer the last part of instruction for today. For our sitting practice, and then the practice of insight meditation in general, uh, by including the, the inevitable visiting arising of thoughts and images as part of the the nature of experience that we have our nature the dharma includes not always in equal measure but includes sights and the knowing of them sounds and the knowing of them smells and the knowing of them tastes and the knowing of them body sensations and the knowing of them, and thoughts and images and emotions and the knowing of them. And we consider the mind as a, an equal sense base or sense door, door of perception, as we would a nose or an eye or an ear or tongue. It's the mental door of perception. So we treat thoughts and images as just uh, sense experiences. A thought is to our door of perception called mind as a sound is to the ear. And as such, any sense experience, including the mental sense experiences, any sense door comes with experiences that arise they fade away, and they arise and fade away all by themselves. Sounds arise, are known, and they pass. Smells arise, are known, and they pass. Our whole life is made up of these six experiences that arise and pass. And every one of those experiences comes accompanied with a conditioned Valence, a conditioned feeling tone. In other words, every experience through all of the different doors of perception are either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant. That's how they're conditioned. So when I took a walk this, at lunch to the, to the gate, I went by the stable, and the smell, smell of the horse manure entered into my mind. And for me, that... The smell of horse manure was associated with a pleasant feeling. I grew up around horses, so that's how it's conditioned in my mind. For you, you may have had the same smell, but it was associated with an unpleasant feeling. 
But every experience that we have comes veiled or accompanied with a feeling tone. And our feeling tones are, um, we're often reacting to these feeling tones. When they're pleasant, thoughts, feelings, everything, when they're pleasant, we go into um, liking and then wanting. When it's unpleasant, we go into not liking, aversion, trying to get away. So the reaction to all of these different experiences tends to create some kind of tension. And what our mindful attention does by awakening to what it is we're experiencing and awakening to the quality of feeling that's coming, to the quality of that valence, by awakening to those elements, we begin to ease our reactivity and be able to open to life as it is, be able to experience the pleasant as pleasant, the unpleasant as unpleasant, and not get so caught up in reactivity. Because once that chain of reactivity starts, we're into rejecting or we're into grasping. And then once we're into rejecting and grasping, whatever it is that's happening, our mind is in a state of agitation, in a state of suspended happiness. Something has to change. Something has to be different. And so the reason I'm presenting this now is because one of those places that we tend to have a lot of reaction to, of liking and disliking, is our thoughts. That particular sense door is the source of incredible intoxication and incredible aversion and ill will. And there's a tendency in meditators to want to stop their thoughts, somehow to treat them as an intrusion or bad. That is just aversion in the mind. And what we're trying to do, what we're trying to tease out of our experience is that in our experience that makes us suffer. That's the only thing that the Buddha was interested. And he said that there were three things that make us suffer. Three poisons in our mind that make those six experiences turn into a a field of suffering. Greed in the mind, wanting what's not there. Aversion in the mind, not wanting what's there. And delusion in the mind, either just being oblivious or personalizing everything. That's delusion in the mind. So what we're trying to do is just experience thoughts, feelings, sensations, all the different sense experience, just as it is, accompanied with whatever feeling tone. The unpleasant thoughts, we open to unpleasant thoughts. The pleasant ones, we enjoy them. But we don't try to suppress our thinking. We also, in our mindful pra- mindfulness practice, we don't try to intentionally extend our thinking either. We try to notice the nature of thought itself. Okay, So that's what we'll be doing now, including as well as every other sense experience that may show up during the sitting. And then I'll speak afterwards about how this is very, how this is really at the heart of the Buddha's way of well-being and happiness. It's learning how to meet our experience without the um, without the the chronic reactivity. Rejecting, grasping and rejecting. Grasping and rejecting. And it's possible. As the Buddha said, if it wasn't possible, I wouldn't ask you to do this. So... See what happens. See if you can meet your thoughts by simply noticing them. And don't dwell too much on whether they're pleasant or unpleasant, but you may notice that some of them are, some of them aren't. 
So even though we're including the whole range of experiences, because our minds tend to be so untrained, it can still be helpful to use as a support, as an anchor, our, um, our body and our, our breathing body and continue that process of harmonizing our mind and body, collecting our attention, focusing, steadying by paying attention to our, our body breath. <laughs> However, when other experiences become stronger than the breath, that we graciously meet them with the same kind of mindful attention that we offer to our breath. And when it comes to moods or sensations or thought, we accept them. We recognize them. We explore their nature, their quality of feeling. We see that they are changing conditions. We notice what happens to them. And we recognize as we do that that none of them are self. None of them are me. None of them are mine. They're selfless. They're just happening all by themselves. And so we stop personalizing everything that presents itself in our mind. Okay? Easy, isn't it? Easier than you think. So once again, eyes close softly, feeling the touch of the eyes until the eyes, eyelids vanish and there's just sensation. Feeling the touch of the hands until there are no hands, just sensation. The touch of the tush on the cush until there's no rear end and no cushion, there's just sensation. Feeling the whole body until there's no body, there's just sensation. Feeling the breath until there's just sensation, expanding, contracting, brushing, cool, warm. And we feel the gentle stillness, the stilling of our mind as it sinks into our body, as a stilling of our body, as our mind embraces it with kind attention. Noticing how the body breathes effortlessly. It's felt and it's noted as in and out or rising and falling. Awareness, open and receptive like the sky. Impartial, welcoming and open to everything. (laughs) 
settling back into the experience of the body and breathing. No need to look for any other experience. There's only this breath. But if something calls your attention, to let the breath recede to the background and let your attention rest in the foreground of whatever it is that becomes predominant. Sounds, other sensations, moods, thoughts, images. Pure receptivity with interest and alertness. Just this moment.
For those of you who are not familiar with the bowing, this is just a, a um, optional gesture of respect and appreciation for you, for what you're doing, for what we are doing together. It's very much connected to the Hindu uh, tradition of saying um, namaste or namaskar, when, which is sometimes translated as when I am in that place in me that is awake or divine, God or whatever, and you're in that wake, in that place in you that is awake, divine God, then we are one. And so it's a, it's a kind of sign of respect to that, um, that inexhaustible resource that lives in us, that deep source of well-being and happiness that we often overlook while we're busy um, making other plans. <laughs> So we're in the final stretches of our day, and I so appreciate you staying with the practice today and the teachings. I wanted to just round out a little bit of the, the teachings on the Buddha's way to well-being and happiness. I've been, without necessarily explicitly saying it, I've been, been describing things in a, in a kind of... <coughs> arc or a trajectory that, that follows the, the Noble Eightfold Path. And the Noble Eightfold Path is, is considered the fourth Noble Truth of the Buddha. Uh, the Buddha's teaching that he first offered to his ascetic friends, sincere yogis like yourselves, uh, was... He, what, what it was described as, he turned the wheel of the Dharma, began to share the teachings, and he, the first thing he said to his ascetic friends, who he knew were very sincere and wanted to be awake and wanted to find a reliable refuge, he said, the first thing you need to know, well, actually, there's three parts of what you, about this first truth. You need to know that life, if you're born, uh, has within it Lots of things that are hard to bear. And this is how it is. There's the pain, there's all kinds of pains of birth, sickness, old age, dying, frustrated desire, wounded pride, loss, separation. Anybody who's born, definition of birth, leading cause of all these things. And this is the diagnosis of your condition. And because things were often put in medical terms, he had a prescription. The prescription is open to this. And then if you wanted to uh, see whether you had fulfilled that, if you'd taken your prescription, you'd, you could say to yourself, yes, I've opened to the fact that life has difficulties. So the whole of our practice is, that, is opening to the fact in not, being, not living our lives so much in contention with reality. Think that something's wrong or something's wrong with me because I have those things in my life. So this, the Buddha's way to happiness is very much bound up in, uh, in opening to the fact that we have difficulties, but not becoming religious about having difficulties, but just opening to that fact. And then he, what he, he went on to say, he didn't just stop there, he said, well, what turns the inherent or intrinsic difficulties of being born, what turns them into mental suffering, what turns them into this chronic wheel of suffering is our chronic tendency to want things to be other than the way they are. 
that expresses itself in the constant state of craving and aversion and the elaborate version of that is that we're in a constant because of our craving and aversion we're in a constant state of building a monument to the me who is becoming somehow happier so we're it's all about a state of what he called bhava becoming so our obsession is tends to be with being on that narrow pathway from where i'm sitting to where i'm going and our mind gets very narrow and in that process of craving becoming craving for pleasure craving for more existence craving for for becoming and the flip side aversion uh desire for things to stop trying to get away from things chronic reaction to life as it is it keeps us on an endless wheel of suffering fortunately he didn't stop there that what causes our our mental suffering to compound the already challenging parts of existence is craving he said there is and the rest the prescription for dealing with the second one is let go crave the opposite of craving is what allowing allowing life enter into the stream of life stop resisting it stop postponing as we talked about today so the rest the prescription is let go and as ajahn cha put it if you let go a little you'll have a little peace and if you let go out a lot you'll have a lot of peace and if you let go completely you'll have complete peace and freedom and you could simplify as ajahn sumedho does in one of his teachings a great monk he says you could simplify your practice down to two words let go <laughs> rather than try to develop this and develop that and be going to this and going to that and read the sutras and study the abhidharma buddha psychology get ordinations in the hinayana the mahayana the vajrayana become a world renowned authority on buddhism buddhism instead of becoming the world authority on buddhism just let go he says i did nothing but that for about 2 years every time i tried to understand or figure things out i'd say let go until the desire fade out he says i'm trying to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering he says there's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international buddhist conferences <laughs> be the world authority on buddhism so just let go so one could say that what we've been doing all day every moment of attention is synonymous with letting go and maybe less than rather than put it in terms of letting go it's letting be it's letting ourselves be with life as it is so it's we're not adding craving and condemning to our experience when we meet it with mindfulness so just try that for a moment without resisting without grasping meet your life any moment and if you do that from morning till night till night you'll have a lot of peace and you'll actually be able to respond and be more skillful in your response to to all the things and the situations people in your life near and afar So the Buddha didn't stop there. He said that there really is within this very life the capacity to let go, to be free, to have a cessation of this tight fist of grasping. That you do not have to live in this constant state of suspended happiness. That there is freedom. 
that there is a domain of experience beyond a well-being that's beyond the field of mind and all its stuff that's neither this world nor another. And it's the very nature of your mind. You, and the important thing is that you realize this. That's the, that's the prescription. Realize that. And then be able to say, yes, I did what needed to be done. I realized it. But then he said there's a path. There is a path that each of us creates out of the, the material of our own individual existence. Of course, along with everything else that's, and everyone else who we're connected with, we use everything and everyone as our path. Every internal experience, every external experience. We use it as our doorway to awakening. And that path, that noble eightfold path, which we've been, I've been referring to today, has three main parts. First part is called a sila, or uh, ethics, morality. It's called uh, the, the part of the path that is the training of the purification of our action. It's the wise action. So that includes our action, wise action, wise speech, wise livelihood. Speech gets its own category because it's so, so much suffering is caused through our inner and outer speech. And if this domain of action is made refined, lots of pleasure, lots of happiness, like I said before, the bliss of blamelessness, the gift of fearlessness. People don't have to be afraid of you. It just brings well-being and happiness to, to ourselves and to the people who have to live around us every day. Second part of the Noble Eightfold Path, which we've been training to some degree today, it's called the purification of mind and has within it the cultivation of wise effort, the cultivation of wise concentration, the cultivation of wise mindfulness. Wise effort, cultivating what is wholesome, what's helpful, maintaining what's helpful and wholesome. So what we've been doing today by by cultivating the purifying effect of mindful attention. That's a wholesome mental quality. It's a wholesome, it purifies every other thing that goes on in your mind. Mindfulness is very helpful. Mixed with kindness. Another wholesome quality of mind, intrinsic to our nature, but often gets occluded by our reactivity. So we cultivate love, we cultivate kindness, we cultivate caring, we cultivate mindfulness as well as acting in ways that are, that are also wholesome, onward-leading, harmonious, beneficial, timely, all those things. Try not to do anything that wise, the wisdom in you would say, not such a great idea. So, and then the second part of wise effort is, is abandoning the, the unwholesome and preventing becoming so mentally strong, so present in your life that the impulse to do something that, that causes harm is actually kept at bay, preventing the unwholesome from arising. That's wise effort. And then wise concentration, mind and body in the same location, aiming and sustaining our attention to hear, the here and now, these simple qualities that everybody has in their mind of gathering our attention here and staying here. It may not seem like much. You do it in everything you do in your life, 
but when it is devoted for the awakening of consciousness, that same gathering of attention and sustaining it gives rise to three qualities that will make you happy. What are those three qualities that come along with connecting and sustaining? Third, the quality that comes with it is sukha. Sukhiya, remember, <laughs> happiness, comfort. It's a mental quality. You'll feel it internally as a sense of, of harmony. There's a, a felt experience to it. Quality of, uh, it's called, the next one's called pity or rapture. You start to feel an intense interest in being right where you are and a, a lack of desire to be somewhere else. Great gladness comes with that. To con- just imagine for a moment not wanting to be somewhere else. We don't even realize how chronic that tendency is. But when it's gone, there's this kind of raptness, and there's an exhilaration that comes with that. So we get comfort, we get exhilaration, and we get what's called one-pointedness. The sense of our mind and body in complete harmony, a sense of stillness comes from time to time. And in the Buddha's case, it came in huge, in a huge arising of a state of concentration. Maybe you felt it a little bit today, these moments where it was effortless to be right here. But that one-pointedness is, it's called ekagata. And we begin to not only feel the sense of single-pointedness and just being right here, but we also start to, with that, you start to feel connected to everything around you. So there begins to melt away that tight, narrow view that I'm so separate. And, it, and we start to feel ourselves as part of the family of things. And this is actually a place where wisdom starts to awaken in us, that there's no being here no matter what shape, what color, what form, there is not one being. And you know this intrinsically when you have this direct experience. There is no being that exists independently apart from any other. So this notion of othering is really an abstraction of our mind. And all our labels, even though they may be useful for certain kind of designations, certain kinds of differences that we have, In the depth of our being, we know that we're not apart from each other. So anything we do to anyone, we're actually doing to ourselves. Anything we do to ourselves, we're actually doing to everyone. So it begins to pull away all the shrouds that we have that keep us bound up in a sense of separateness. Whether it's around race or around around differentness, around, around privilege, around all of our differences it starts to show us that, that, there's, that any place that we get bound up in some kind of un- inequality, that's a place that needs love. That's a place that needs work. And, that, um, and the passion for doing that just naturally flows from our sense of connection. So you may not think that just coming close to the present moment will unfurl or unleash all of this wisdom and love, but it does. That's the paradox. You come to that single point, you start to feel connected to everything. So that's concentration. And then the mindfulness. Wise mindfulness. That's the second part of purity of mind. The mindfulness, every moment of mindfulness, not only becomes the seed of wisdom, 
but it also becomes that seed of, of concentration. It's both of the, you can't have a moment of mindfulness that's not also giving rise to concentration. But what happened to the Buddha, and this is the last thing I'll talk about, what happened to the Buddha is he, all that anybody was teaching at, during his life was just the, the joy and the happiness that comes from a concentrated heart and mind. He saw that that kind of happiness that comes from being concentrated is far superior to the kind of dandruffs, little pieces of pleasure that we tenor, generally settle for. And that this, he became amazed at how sustained and how, how much one could clear their consciousness of all of its obscurations and how much this concentrated mind kept the, the torments of the mind at bay and the great joy that came with that. And that's what was being taught. He said, but that's not freedom. That's not a reliable refuge because eventually even that concentrated state, as useful as it is to pacify these torments, as useful as it is to create the conditions where we can see a little bit more clearly and feel a little bit more connected in our life, still the states of concentration are just a high-class kind of samsara, a high-class kind of pleasure that eventually will fade away. And how did he find that out? Because he was so, because he was practicing mindfulness. And he saw that everything that you could pay attention to was in a state of flux. And anything that was in a state of flux, anything that could appear and disappear, could not bring you lasting happiness. And so what he did is he made a determination. I'm not going to just stop with being concentrated and having a pleasant abiding, even though it's so, it's so inspiring and keeps us going to have these moments of great concentration. He says, I want to find something that is unreliable. I mean, that is reliable, sorry. <laughs> I'm not going to settle for, for uh, just a happy state, because none of them last anyway. But he said that this power of concentration is very useful anyway because it, it, it pacifies the hindrances and the torments enough that I can maybe see clearly and study my experience close enough to see where in this life of ever-changing experience, where is there something reliable that I can, I can rest, rest in? And so what he did is he arose... He aroused that concentration. He felt the joy of the concentration. So if we don't have a little bit of the joy, we, it's hard to keep going. So it's a good thing. And it's very pacifying. It's very calming. But, he, but it said in the teachings, he didn't let the joy of it overtake him. Instead, he applied the power of mind that came with concentration. He mixed it with mindfulness and then started to study his experience, just like we've been studying all day. The changing breath, the changing sensations, the changing moods, the changing thoughts, the changing sounds. And everything he paid attention to, he kept seeing was changing. And he saw that, and everything he paid attention to just kept brightening his mind until it was just shining with such clarity on moment-to-moment experience. And then with that clarity, he saw every experience appears and disappears. And anything that appears and disappears 
unreliable. And anything that disappear, appears and disappears by itself is selfless. That nowhere in the process of mind and body can you find a solid abiding entity to which all this is happening. So not only did he see the arising and passing of things, which brought a tremendous joy of not grabbing anymore and not pushing away, the joy of equanimity, another part of the path of happiness and well-being, is that the joy is not, is not just a state, an experience, but the, a deeper joy comes when you don't cling and you don't condemn what's going on. And he saw this kind of happiness, the joy of equanimity, far superior, because this is a taste of freedom. It's a taste of a well-being that doesn't depend on what's happening in my mind or my body or my life. And so, and we find this quality of equanimity as the, as the gateway in all the lists of the Buddha, the last of the four immeasurable qualities that include love, compassion, joy, and equanimity, the last of the, the factors of enlightenment, the last of the perfections of a Buddha, are, is this quality of equanimity. So we aim for this quality of equanimity. So the Buddha, as the Buddha relaxed into that joy of equanimity, it still begged the question, well, where's the reliable refuge? in this world of incessant change. But then in a flash of insight, his heart, mind opened. There was a, an opening. And in a flash, he realized, oh, the reliable refuge, the highest happiness, is none other than the very nature of the mind itself. The very of the nature of nature of the mind through which each of us is perceiving, then our own primordial nature, our own innate mind is free, is open, untouched by whatever visits. The awareness of hot is not hot. The awareness of sad is not sad. The awareness of anger is not angry. The awareness itself untouched by what visits. And he realized that. What he'd seen was, you could say, his own face, the deepest face, his deepest nature. But it's the same nature. There's no nature, this nature of, of freedom that is the natural state of our mind. And he didn't think because it was so close and it was so wonderful and so vast and so easy. You don't have to go anywhere to find it. He didn't think anybody would understand it. And, um, but then he saw, as the story goes, with his eye of wisdom, he saw that there were those, and I include everybody in this room, there were those with just a little dust on their eyes. And if pointed to the nature of the mind and given the method, a method to brush the dust of memory, that that same clear mirror, that same innate luminosity would be able, be able to shine forth in each person. So he spent the next 45 years saying, train your attention to be here. Practice non-harming. Cultivate the wholesome. Abandon the unwholesome. Follow this path with the, with the meat of your own life, whatever's happening. Train your attention to, 
to see every arising experience. Make truth your devotion, not self. And you, because you just have a little dust on your eyes, will, will realize the same, what he called the highest happiness. The happiness of freedom, the happiness of nirvana, many different things. Uh, but you can know this for yourself in this very life. So it may not seem like you're, like you're navigating uh, a path of well-being and happiness when you're paying attention to your breathing, but you're actually, in every moment of mindfulness, you are in the vicinity of that freedom because a moment of mindfulness is a moment of non-clinging. It's a moment of being, of attuning to the nature of awareness itself, the nature of mind itself, which is primordially free. So don't, as the famous monk, Japanese Zen monk Ryokan put it, Buddha is your mind. The way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. If you keep pointing your cart north when you want to go south, how will you ever arrive? So I want to close with one of my favorite passages. from the Tibetan teacher that somehow encapsulates everything we've been talking about today but does not preclude the, the benefits of paying attention to every presently arising experience that you have. This is the words of Gendon Rinpoche called uh, free and easy. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There is nothing to do or to undo. Whatever momentarily arises in your body and mind has no real importance at all and has little reality whatsoever. So why identify with it? Get so carried away, become attached to it, passing judgment upon it and ourselves. Far better to simply let the entire game happen on its own, springing up and falling back like waves, without changing or manipulating anything. Now remember, he's talking about the practice. Now there are many things in our life where we have to, we have to do something about things. But in terms of our awakening, we need to, to practice this quality of non-interference, to be able to see clearly. Far better to simply let the entire game happen on its own, springing up and falling back like waves, without changing or manipulating anything. And notice how everything vanishes and reappears magically again and again time without end. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. It's like a vivid rainbow which you pursue without ever catching, or a dog chasing its own tail. Although peace and happiness do not exist as an actual thing or place, it is always available and accompanies you every instant. 
Don't believe in the reality of good and bad experiences. They are like today's ephemeral weather, like rainbows in the sky. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you open and relax this tight fist of grasping, infinite space is there, open, inviting, comfortable. So make use of this spaciousness, this freedom and natural ease. Don't search any further. Don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who is already resting quietly at home in front of your own fireplace. Nothing to do or to undo, nothing to force and nothing to want. Nothing missing. Marvelous, everything unfolds of itself. So may we all cultivate this open but continuous awareness to things as they are, not clinging, not condemning, and may all of us realize, and all beings everywhere, realize the highest happiness. Because, as the great poet Hafez says, you carry all the ingredients to turn your existence into a nightmare. Don't mix them. (laughs) And you carry all the ingredients to turn your existence into joy. Mix them, mix them. So may all of us have joy, the causes of joy, the ending of suffering and the causes of suffering. And may all beings, without exception, never be separated from this sacred happiness that's without sorrow, always available here and now. And may all of us at least grow in serenity and equanimity, being a little bit less contentious, less grasping, less aversion to things, to people, to situations near and afar. May our practice today and for the rest of our lives be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of the rest of us, uh, all of us, and not leave anyone outside of our hearts and our minds. Thank you so much for your practice. Be happy. So thank you for your presence here. Thank you for your generosity. If anybody wants to sit with me Tuesday nights, every Tuesday, except this week, I start a retreat up the hill. But go to missiondharma.org. And also I have a book coming out at the end of the month uh, called Invitation to Meditation. Give it to all your family members who don't know it. And I, I say this because it doesn't mention the Buddha, doesn't even mention mindfulness. It's all about learning to live in the, in the here and now. So. Invitation to meditate. It's already on pre-order on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, so check it out. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.